Good morning. I have a question, which is, where have you guys been? Uh, I, I've been here preaching, uh, but no, I, uh, I know some of this is a little bit surreal, um, the masks and the uh, distance, and uh, we're trying to figure all that out. Um, but please, let me assure you, it's not nearly as surreal as preaching to an empty church building. So I'm excited. I'm excited you guys are here and uh, looking forward to the things we're going to talk about today. We're going to start in Luke chapter 4, so go ahead and open to that place. I put some uh, handout sheets there on your pew. If they're not on your pew, they might be on the pew in front of you or behind you, uh, just to help in following along. And there's a little blank so that you can uh, keep up with what I'm doing and uh, where we are. And also so you know that the lesson doesn't have more than five points so that you don't get scared that we might be here forever. Don't forget we have another service coming up at 11, so we do have to, we do have to be done uh, by 11. I guess that's some consolation. Uh, but uh, anyway, if you would grab that, and uh, you'll see where we're headed uh, for our topic and our idea for our study this morning. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, I want to begin by reading Luke 4 and verse 16. In Luke 4 and verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So this is a powerful passage about how Jesus goes back to his hometown, and he reads from the scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, and the people are amazed at his teaching. And so it is very much a statement about how great Jesus is, and also a little bit of a statement about the rejection of his uh, contemporaries and the people who he grew up with. But I want you to notice how in verse 16 it references, as was his custom that Jesus had a custom, a practice, a habit. And those kinds of things are the things that I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Uh, a lot of time has passed since we were last together, and because of that, I, I don't know if you have thought about it, for those of us who don't have kids in this age range, uh, but we have some young people in our congregation who are graduating from high school and transitioning into the next phase of life. Uh, we actually have three, Braxton and Matthew and Tessa, and... Uh, I tell you, I, I really hate for them uh, that this school year has ended the way it has uh, and uh, with the, the strangeness that all of this has brought into our lives. But as I thought about that, from time to time, I have the opportunity to talk to young people at this stage in their lives as they go on to college, as they look forward to the future, whatever that may hold in terms of career, they move away from home and start a new chapter. And so when I have those opportunities, usually it's crammed into maybe an hour of lunch or something like that. And so uh, you kind of have to get to the point. You kind of have to say a few things. You don't know what sticks or what won't. And so what I wanted to do is say, you know what, if everybody was just quiet and I got to say everything that I thought was vital to say to someone at that stage of life, these are the things I would say. So you guys have masks on. You have to be quiet uh, while I talk for a few minutes about how we would from the Bible, talk about this time period. We're going to call this navigating the college years. We have a number of young people who are at this time in their lives. If they're not at this time, maybe they're going through the college years. Maybe they're just after the college years. Maybe they're just before the college years. Whatever it is, I think these are some, some guidelines from Scripture that are going to be helpful for all of us because they are about how we can use the wisdom of God to frame our lives in a way where we are set up to do God's will and have good things come to us. Now, I say college years. That's not because I think everybody needs to go to college. College is not for everybody. I'm really just talking about that transition into adulthood where that happens during that time of life. How do we act 
when we go on our own for the first time? What really matters? That's what I want us to think about. So consider this, my talk to all our young people, and also to those of us who are older who have the opportunity to talk with some of our young people. For those who are a little older and have begun to put some of these things in place, what should your priorities be? Consider it those kinds of ideas. First of all, if we're going to navigate the college years, my advice, my encouragement from Scripture is build good habits. Build good habits. Now, that's why we began here with Jesus going to Nazareth. It says there in the text, this was his custom. His custom went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They know him there. It's not the first time. Jesus doesn't walk into the synagogue and they say, now, who are you? They know Jesus because Jesus was almost always at the synagogue when he was there. Now, it's interesting because Jesus has parents who raised him to have good spiritual habits. Turn back the page to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 and verse 41. Luke 2 and verse 41. It says, Now his parents, speaking of Jesus, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Notice that. They went every year at the Feast of the Passover. Now, this kind of worked this way. It seems to me in my reading of the Old Testament and then some of the after effects, you know, into the New Testament, is you have God's expectation that three times a year all Israelite males come to these feasts. Three feasts, everybody should come. But there were some exceptions if you lived an extremely far distance from Jerusalem, you know, or you had some things that you had to take care of, you, you could sort of be excused. But you can also see that there are some people who would take that much more seriously than others. And some people who would say, no, we need to be there every year. We need to make an effort. We need to plan around it. We need to make preparation to go. Those were Jesus' parents. And I want to remind you that God had his pick of any parents to raise his son. And God chose Joseph and Mary And Joseph and Mary were the kind of people who would go up every year who had a habit. So it's clear when Jesus is grown that there is at least some influence that habit had. It was already his custom to go into the synagogue. It was already the habit of his family. So when we talk about building good habits, part of that is going to be building on the groundwork that has already been laid, something that your parents have given to you. And we all have parents We all have habits that are given to us by our parents. Some of those habits are good. Some of those habits are not so good. But we build on the good habits that we've already been given. And that is the encouragement I want to give to our young people. Build good habits. There is an incredible power in habits. You know, when you begin to learn to talk, there's a lot of effort and intensity in how do I get the right words? How do I say exactly what I mean? But eventually... We can talk without thinking about it. There's a lot of effort that you put into learning how to ride a bike. Okay? And it feels weird and you're trying to learn these new motions, but eventually it gets into the point where it's so habitual that you don't even think about it. And that eventually happens with driving, although I'm not encouraging that with our young people, um, where you, it becomes a habit. It becomes something you're so comfortable doing that you hardly think about it. So if that's the power habits have, we need to develop habits that say, I'm going to do things that are good, that are good for me and good for others, to the point that I really don't have to think about it. It's not a question, am I going to do this or not? It is instead something that I'm naturally going to habitually do. So, what kinds of habits will you build into your life? 
to take that application of the synagogue and bring it to the, the Christian assembly. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 said, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the, the habit there implies that there were people even in the New Testament era, even Christians, who had developed a habit of not meeting together and the Hebrew writer is saying, don't be like them. Let's meet together and think about one another and stir one another up. Let that be our habit. Instead of taking our cues from other people who are not living in a habitually good, thoughtful, careful, loving way. It's very interesting to me that when he talks about habits of attendance, that you can observe that just today. Just look around. Look at Christians. Christians have all kinds of different habits about church attendance. And some Christians, they, they are the every time the doors are open attendance habit. And some Christians are the, well, Bible class is kind of optional habit. And some people are uh, just Sunday morning and Wednesday night habit, but no class on Sunday morning. And so, certainly not a Sunday night, if we had a Sunday night. You know, and there are all these kinds of habits. You wonder, well, where did all that come from? Well, it's not about, we studied the New Testament and came to this conclusion. It is instead about, we developed a habit and now we follow that habit. And he is saying, develop a habit that's going to be a blessing to you. So as we move away from home and begin our own lives, we may have a habit that our parents have given us. But now we have to decide, what am I going to do? Who am I going to be? Where am I going to go? And I am encouraging you to build good habits. And I especially want to stress, I say this, what I'm about to say, from my own failures and my own experience. I deeply regret the fact that when I was in college, I did not make a habit of developing strong relationships with Christians in the local church where I attended. I went, and then I left, and that was it. And instead of people knowing me and holding me accountable and strengthening me when I was weak, I wanted them to know as little as possible about me. That was a habit that I developed. I had to grow out of that. So build good habits. Build a habit of Bible study. Build a habit of being with other people who will be good for you. Build a habit of prayer. Build a habit of serving and thinking about others, stirring one another up to love and good works. Just remember that each step you take in terms of your habits is a step down a path to a certain kind of character. You're becoming a certain kind of person. So build habits into your life that will be a blessing to you. Second, uh, seek good influences. Seek good influences. I'll let you write that down for a second, but we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, we're going to read verse 20. This is one of those Proverbs that kind of makes you say, duh. And yet it's one that we struggle with living, I think maybe because there are some other elements that go into it. But when he says it this way, it's hard to argue with him. Proverbs 13 and verse 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Well, that makes a lot of sense when you put it like that, right? Okay, the people that we surround ourselves help determine the kind of person we are going to be. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. We become like them. If we listen to wise people, we benefit from their wisdom. We learn, we listen, we begin to think like them. And suddenly we are growing into the kind of person that they are. But if we are around fools, what happens? We end up suffering the same fate they do. After all, 
They are our companions. So which kind of people will you choose to be around? Are you going to be around people who are going to make you into a better person? Are you going to be around people who cause you and draw you into the trouble they create? Turn with me back to Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1. I'll remind you here that uh, the Proverbs are written, most of them like a father to a son. And this section is certainly like that. Proverbs 1 and verse 10. Proverbs 1 and 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So you see the the tone of the text. The tone of the text is that there are people who say, hey, let's get together and do something bad. And the deep insight that Solomon has behind the text is that people do things under the influence of other people that they would never do on their own. This is a terrible idea. Let's all lie in wait and rob somebody and hurt them. That's a terrible idea. But what would be just a terrible idea in my brain that then comes to nothing when I voice it out loud and my friends say, that's a great idea, let's do it. Suddenly, we're all bought in. And we're all going to encourage one another to do something that all of us know is a terrible idea. And we set a net for ourselves, or as Solomon has said before, the companion of fools will suffer harm. The people that you are around will set the temperature for your attitude and your speech and your habits. And maybe without you even realizing it, they will exert an influence on the way you think. The question is, what kind of influence will it be? What kind of people will you surround yourself with? I wonder, why do we have such trouble with this? Why do our young people struggle with this so much? Why did I struggle with it when I was younger? There is something in us that is so powerfully drawn to other people. We want to fit in and we want to belong and we want to have companions. That sometimes we struggle with knowing just who we are and what we think and what we should do without others helping define it for us. And we end up being acted on instead of us acting on others. And we tend to think, at least I know I did when I was younger, we tend to think that these warnings are overblown. You know, that, that parents and Solomon and the Bible and all this, they're just kind of trying to boss us around and tell us what to do. But I want to remind you, young people, that you have seen this at work. You have seen it at your school. You have seen it in the church. You have seen good people turn bad. And usually, it's because of influences. I suspect you've even seen it in your own life where you have ended up doing or saying things that you never would have otherwise because of the people you surrounded yourself with. At this stage in my life, I will just say, I have seen dozens of good Christian kids go to college, start running with a bad group of friends, and lose their faith. Some of them make horrible decisions in those moments that they regret for the rest of their lives. And it almost always starts with friends. So I'm going to encourage you, seek good influences. 
who will be a blessing to you. Walk with the wise and become wise. Seek that out. Third thing, find a good mate. Find a good mate. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11. Now, I know young people, you might be thinking, I'm not really looking for a mate at the moment. That's okay. I'm not trying to pressure you into finding a mate. But when you do, I want to give you some thoughts and advice about that. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. 1 Kings 11 and 1 says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon was a faithful servant of Jehovah until he married all these foreign women. It's not their nationality that's the problem. You married the wrong nation, although certainly God had forbidden that. But he says specifically why. They will turn away your heart. They turn Solomon's heart away from Jehovah. That is the unique gravitational pull that marriages have on our spiritual lives. We just tend to fall into the orbit of whoever we are closest to. And when we are closest to our mate, then our hearts can be turned away. Now, I said earlier... Young people, I'm not trying to pressure you into finding a mate at this stage in your life, but it is probable that during this time in your life, you'll at least begin that process. Thinking about looking at dating toward marrying someone. The best advice that I could give you, both from Scripture and from wiser people than me and from my own experience, is find a good mate. There is no one who will set your spiritual temperature like your mate. You will talk to them more than anyone else. You will spend more time with them than anyone else. You are signing up for years of conversations, years of sharing your ups and downs and theirs, years of stress and work, years of joy and love and sorrow together. Why not spend your life with a person who will make you better rather than someone who might just make you temporarily happy? I want to tell you there are Two courses about this that I think are worth addressing because they are both very problematic. They are prevalent in our time. The first is the Disney soulmate myth. You guys know this, the idea that there is just one person on a planet with seven billion people, there is just one that you were made for. And you just got to go out and find them. And nobody else will do. It's like trying on the perfect pair of shoes. You just got to keep trying till you find the one. That's the one that was made for you. Anyone else just going to leave you miserable and unfulfilled? You just can't be happy with anybody but your one person. Now that is garbage, but it has been sold to us our whole lives. There is every fairy tale that says there's only one special prince that can do it, or one person that you fall in love somehow just by looking at them. And it says that just feeds this myth that there's one person for you. There are so many things wrong with that picture of romance and marriage. Please hear me. It makes me the most important part of a marriage. Are you making me happy? 
That's the constant question. And if I'm ever not feeling maximum fulfillment in my marriage, then it must be that you're not my soulmate. There just must be somebody else who will make me happier. That's the person I need to seek out. And then inevitably, when we have some problems, we assume that this person is somebody we just need to move on from. Proverbs 31 and verse 10 says, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs 31, 10 and 30. I want you to see, first of all, to find an excellent wife is to find something that's far more valuable than anything else. And then to say, what makes a wife excellent is a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Not someone who's charming, not someone who's beautiful. Find someone who will be good. The ancient world, have you ever thought about this? The ancient world had arranged marriages. So those kinds of verses, the verses about happiness and marriage that are in the Bible, came during a time when people could not pick their mate. They were usually arranged by fathers in the families. And yet, they were expected to find joy and happiness and obedience. We don't have that restriction, do we? We get to pick our mates, and we have to convince them to marry us. But I have to ask you, how is that working out for us? Our divorce rates are still extraordinarily high. Maybe the issue here is not that we get to pick. Maybe the issue here is that we're not picking very well. Because we've been told that there's only one person for us. And we're just seeking that one person who makes the sparks fly. Instead of finding someone who will be a good mate. I'm not saying that every time there is sorrow in a marriage or frustration in a marriage. That there aren't deeper problems at root. I am saying, don't think that there's only one person. The magic person for whom everything will be perfect. Find a good mate and work on it. Now I said there were two dangerous courses here. That was just the first one. The other is where we find somebody who's attractive and we start to date them. And we like them and it seems to go well. I mean, they're pretty nice people. And uh, if we talk to them about Jesus, it's kind of in an offhanded way. And they're not that interested. So we say, oh, we'll table that and we'll talk about it later. Uh, So we stay in the relationship and things get more serious. And we go meet their parents and they meet our parents. And we start talking about the next step. And next thing you know, the guy pops the question. And then, hey, we're planning weddings. Where are we going to live? What are we going to do? And we start looking forward to the next step in life. And someone says, well, well wait a minute. What about, uh, what about religion? Oh, well, we just haven't really talked about it that much. And I know that's the case because sometimes those couples will come to me and say, hey, can you talk to us before we get married? And it is clear from the first moment I bring it up that they have not talked at all about their spiritual compatibility. It hasn't even entered the equation. But when there are disagreements at that moment and they say, you know what, we don't really match up well. Well, all of a sudden we're deeply in love. We can't back out now. And so they go forward and inevitably there is the difficulties that come with not being spiritually compatible. That's Solomon's problem, isn't it? His heart was turned away by his wives. My encouragement is that you see those courses and you say, you know what, that's not the path I want to go down. Find a good mate, someone who is willing to help you grow spiritually, hold you accountable, strengthen you, encourage you, challenge you, work with you. Don't let Jesus be a side note in your relationship. Let it be the dominant note. Find a good mate. Fourth thing, 
I told you we only have five. I even gave you the sheet as a sign of good faith that we're not going to go on too long. Uh, Respond well to your mistakes. Respond well to your mistakes. Matthew chapter 26 is where I want to go here. Matthew 26. This is the night Jesus is to be betrayed. And he warns the disciples, Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I'll drop down to verse 73, Matthew 26, 73. It says, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So here is Peter warned about what he's going to do, and he's in complete denial. I will never deny you. Even if all of these guys do, I will never deny you. And that very night, he ends up in a position where he denies Jesus. He makes a huge mistake here. But the fascinating thing about Peter is that he does not just sit and wallow in his mistake. It says he goes out and weeps bitterly. But this is on Friday, by my reckoning. Come Sunday, he's running to the tomb. Sunday, he is with the other disciples. That is a a strong juxtaposition to Judas, who has the same kind of mistake and has deep regret as well, but he just gives up and kills himself. He is overwhelmed by his guilt and his shame, and he ends it all. So, young people, here is my advice. Don't be like Judas. Be like Peter. You will make mistakes. And I want to say this now. I am not encouraging you to make mistakes, but I don't think you need my encouragement. You're going to make mistakes. Some of those mistakes will be mistakes of youth. I just didn't know. I didn't understand. I was inexperienced. In some way, I made those mistakes. Some of them are going to be what we might call high-handed mistakes. I knew it was wrong, and I did it anyway. Some of them are going to be mistakes that have long-reaching consequences. Sometimes you may wake up and say, what have I been doing with my life? You may wake up and say, how did I get addicted to this? How did I get into this relationship? How am I in this situation? And when you wake up and you see the mistake, here is the key. Respond well. Be like Peter, not like Judas. Peter didn't quit. These are the decisions that define your lives. I tell my kids sometimes, the most decision you will ever, the most important decision you will ever make, I don't say most decision because that doesn't make any sense. The most important decision you will ever make is what do you do after you mess up? And I want to stress that while it's easy to look around at a local church and say, wow, these people all have their act together, I want to stress to you, a local church is just a group of people who are trying to respond well to their mistakes. Every one of us has a past that we are ashamed of and embarrassed by, and we are here because of the past. We don't want to go back to that. We're embarrassed by it. We want to live better. We want to be forgiven. That's why we're here. So when you start to find yourself making mistakes, respond well, come back to the Lord, serve, be forgiven, find others, encourage them, and receive encouragement from them. 
Every single person in this room has a shameful past in history that then prompts our gratitude and our worship. That's why we're here. So in time, you'll make mistakes. Respond well to your mistakes. And the last thing I want to say is take responsibility for your spiritual life. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. I know I'm asking you to do two things at once by writing and then turning. Ephesians chapter 4 is where I want to read here. Ephesians 4 and verse 11. Ephesians 4 and verse 11. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, Ephesians 4.12 now, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I understand this is one of those passages that can be a little overwhelming. There's lots of words there, and Paul has long run-on sentences. But his point is simply that God has given gifts to his people to help build each other up to become what he's called us to be, to be like Jesus, to grow up into the measure of the stature of Christ's fullness. But he also talks about the dangers of not growing, that when you don't grow, you're susceptible to every teaching that blows through, everything somebody might say to you. Grown people can think and act for themselves, but immature people, they're relying on everyone else. For people in their college years, there is a transition taking place. We're moving from a child to an adult. We're learning to take responsibility for ourselves. We're handling money. We're working and holding down a job. We're maintaining relationships on our own. We're having to show up. Usually there's not somebody calling us if we don't show up to class or to work. It's more like being an adult. So as you learn to take responsibility for your life, I am encouraging you to take responsibility for your spiritual life, to grow and to face your flaws and to try to work on them to become a different, better person. I want to encourage you to dig into the Word of God and find out what is there and to learn and to teach it and to become the man or woman of God that He created you to be. And I want to say this, nobody will force you to do that. Nobody is going to come up to you and say, wow, I'm just really disappointed that you're not growing. Nobody is going to call you and say, hey, would you please light a fire under yourself? This is something you choose. Let me say it this way. If you want to be a pew potato where you just sit there and watch other people do everything without considering and learning and growing and working and serving yourself. Nobody's going to stop you. You can be that if you want. But you don't have to do that. You can be different. You can grow strong. And you can bless a church. And you can lead others to Jesus. And you can serve the people around you. You can be a light to the world. But you have to choose that. No one can do that for you. I like to think of it this way. That we come into the world as takers. When we're babies, we take. Our parents are giving and giving and giving. And as we grow, 
we keep taking and taking and taking, there has to be a time in our lives where we transition from being takers to being givers. Where it's no longer about what are you doing for me, but what can I do for you? And that is true maturity. And I want to encourage our young people. Don't just wait for everybody else to do something for you. What can you do? What can you add? Who can you become? Light a fire and have a vision. I want to tell you how that manifests in my life. There was a time several years ago where I was in a dark place spiritually. I was struggling with my own personal flaws, working through how to continue serving Jesus. And I was searching and I read Psalm 1, which to this day remains my favorite psalm. I know that sounds easy because it's the first one you get when you open psalms. But Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. As I looked at my life and I thought about what I was going through, I determined I wanted to be that tree. I wanted to be the kind of person that no matter what was going on around me, I was going to thrive. I was going to help others. I was going to do good. I was going to do the right thing. No one made me do that. No one pressured me. No one followed behind me. The people who are around you, who are taking spiritual responsibility for themselves, are doing it because they have made that decision. And I want to encourage you to make that decision for yourselves. So that's my advice. That's what I would say. Build good habits, seek good influences, find a good mate, respond well to your mistakes, and take responsibility for your spiritual life. Life is full of decisions, but I want to warn you, some decisions are more important than others. Because some decisions set the tone of your life and the direction of your life. And every decision you make is a step down a path toward the person you're going to become. That path leads somewhere. I want you to know, I want to say this to our young people. We are proud of you and we are praying for you. We love you and we want good for you. Nothing that I have said is about me wanting to control you or make you into something that I want you to be. It is instead the act of love that says if we can help, we want to. But we also know by our own experience and our own mistakes that the life that you really want is only found in Jesus. We have found that for ourselves, and that's the reason we do what we do and say what we say. So would you pray with me about it? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have had together as your people. We're thankful that we have been able to gather together today, and we're thankful, Father, for the time to open your word together and think about life. Father, we pray for our young people. We're so thankful for these young people who are transitioning and moving away from home and, and out of that uh, dynamic and becoming adults in a new uh, transition in a new way. And Father, we are mindful of them and we want good for them and we ask that you will be with them, that you'll bless them and help them as they make decisions to show wisdom, to see ahead and to want to do right. And Father, I pray that you'll be with us as their brothers and sisters to encourage them, 
to applaud and the good that they do and when they make mistakes to pick them up and to strengthen them again. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. The fact that we are able to, because of your grace, stand before you and appeal to you and know that you're with us. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to trust you and your will for us and to trust your word so that we can follow you without fear. Father, I pray that you'll be with your people here and everywhere, that you'll give us the strength that we need to endure through this difficult time and the wisdom that we need to make good decisions that will honor you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation. This is the time that we've set aside for those who need to make a change in their lives, want our help in some way to let us know so that we can pray with you about that, some sin that you want to tell us about that we can help you with, or if you're ready to be baptized into Christ and have your sins washed away and begin that walk with the Lord, this is your time. Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.